fly around. Little green peas from the ground. Buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Cast on skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Drop 'em black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table, a show dedicated to the people of our Appalachian region who produce, prepare, and preserve our local foods and agricultural products. This is your hostess, Amy Campbell. And today we are setting the table with some special Christmas recipes, a fun story from our regional local seed and story-saving friend, John Coykendall, and a neat story from James Beard award-winning food writer, Ronnie Lundy, on the topic of pinto beans. I sure do want to say thank you for tuning in today and being my guest at this big Tennessee table, and let's get started. Today we are setting the table with a question, why do we all eat pinto beans? Today in our Appalachian region, the term soup beans is synonymous with pinto beans. We talk a lot about saving heirloom varieties of beans on this show, and with so many varieties of heirloom beans that have been handed down by Native Americans and kept alive by generations of people living in the mountains, how did pintos become the default bean for the Appalachian table? As told by food writer Ronnie Lundy, it involves coal camps, coal mining, labor riots, the company store, and the loss of the ability to garden, save seed, and maintain food sustainability. Here's that James Beard award-winning writer, Ronnie Lundy, to shed some light on this topic. And Ronnie Lundy is the two times James Beard award-winning food writer and author of Vittles, An Appalachian Journey with Recipes. You know, there's the great mystery of, of why we eat pinto beans, which we don't know the answer to, for sure, because pintos are a Mesoamerican southwestern bean. We have a gazillion varieties of beans that could be, you know, those beautiful cranberry beans and the Christmas beans and blah, 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 you know, and, and, and you know, if you had, if, if you grew up when I did and you had relatives who were growing their dried beans, your soup beans would be brown or red, but they wouldn't necessarily be pintos, you know. Um, But pintos, Bill Best believes that, um, and Sherry Castle was the person who started trying to track this down, um, and she ended up talking to Bill, and Bill believes that in the Depression, um, uh, pinto beans became like such a commodity, they became so inexpensive compared to 
the work of planting and growing that people just started substituting pinto beans. And they would have been, they obviously, maybe not obviously, they logically would have been the bean that would have been available in work camps, in logging camps and in mining stores because those corporations who ran those stores would buy the pintos in bulk, you know, where you wouldn't buy a smaller bean. I mean, the pintos were the ones that could be grown um, in in the sort of um, more corporate agriculture way, you know, on the bigger farms as opposed to in your small garden. And so they they replaced, they became the bean of, of choice, you know, for people because they were so available and they taste really good, but they're not actually native to Appalachia. Boy, that is edifying. It makes me wonder, too, the life in the mining camp itself, no room for a little garden, no time to tend the garden. Well, let me let me correct some of that for you because here's part, here's a piece of, of what went on yes. in the in the early mining towns and uh, David Allen Corbin has this book here we go Life Work and Rebellion in the Coalfields it's terrific anyway when he was writing so at the time of Blair Mountain initially there are coal camps and there is a company store but the people in the coal camps the women in the coal camps planted gardens and and they would keep an animal sometimes they keep a milk cow or oh. a pig or something like that, so they would not be fully dependent on the company store. And there's a, a quote in here, of, it's in Vittles too, but one of them, the National Mine Organizers, talks about the fact that the miners on strike in eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and Southwest Virginia are better fed and healthier because they have their gardens. Well, what starts to happen then is that when the miners go on strike, the, um, the thugs come in and they throw the family out of their houses, right? That there would be tent camps. People would have their tent camps, but they would also have, you know, they would bring their harvest or whatever, but they throw the people, all of their stuff onto the street, and then they destroyed, they broke all the canned goods, and they destroyed the garden and either confiscated or killed the animals so that people would not be able to eat. And then I, as time went on, you know, as we come into the more modern era, um, you're, first of all, the polluted conditions of the cold camps didn't allow you to have that kind of garden, and you didn't have that kind of space. They learned to not give you space so that you would be dependent on the company store, more dependent on the company store. Just absolutely handicap people's ability to feed themselves and much less grow and save right. Christmas beans. Yeah, feed or clothe or, or, you know, do anything for themselves, you know? That's such good history to know. Yeah, and it's history that's been suppressed. I mean, it has been consciously, you know, one of the things that I do, we, but when I speak, um, first of all, I usually ask people if they know Blair Mountain, mm-hmm. and it's astonishing how many people in Appalachia have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm. And to not, I mean, Blair, Blair Mountain should be understood in American history. It is the largest 
armed labor uprising in the history of the United States. And, and it's, it, until recently, has not even been taught in West Virginia or Kentucky schools. I wasn't taught about it. I didn't know about it. Oh, that is, uh, that's telling. Yeah. Yeah. Better, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, we don't, we don't know our labor history. And then the other, the other person that I've been talking about is asking people if they've heard of Ella Mae Wiggins. And nobody has, you know. And she, she was born in Bryson City, um, North Carolina. Wiley Cash's book, The Last Ballad is about her and that's what you need to get and read it because he does a beautiful job of writing about her and you are listening to the tennessee farm table and you've just heard from two-time james beard award-winning food writer ronnie lundy on why we all eat pinto beans in her discussion she made mention of several people like sherry castle a fellow food writer who's chasing down the story of why we all eat pinto beans, and Ronnie referenced Blair Mountain, meaning the Battle of Blair Mountain, and the book that she referenced is entitled Life, Work, and Rebellion in the Coal Fields, The Southern West Virginia Miners, 1880-1922, through 1922, by David Corbin. Links to all of my show's guests and topics, including Ronnie, Sherry Castle, and David Corbin's book, are all listed on my website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. Yep, you can find all of them with those links and connect to all of them there, along with this fella, East Tennessee-based heirloom seed saver John Koykendall. Here is John with a cute little story about a young fella and his feelings about eating beans almost every meal. But this one pea I have right here is called the Bradham Stock Pea. It dates to 1870 down in Georgia. And that came from uh, this family. And this old fellow was telling me the story. He said, when I was about eight years old, every day we had peas. Mom would make that little bowl of peas for me and I had my piece of cornbread. They might've had some sweet potato or something else. But anyway, he said, one day I rebelled. I sat down and had a big frown on my face. I looked at that bowl of peas, took that bowl of peas, and I pushed it away. And Mama asked, what's the matter, son? And I said, I ain't eating no more peas. I'm tired of them. Well, his daddy just looked at him, and he said, that's all right, son. You'll eat them tomorrow. <laughs> In other words, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> that was a... The choice. That was the choice. <laughs> That's a good story, John. Well, you know, most of these old peas that we have here, they all have stories because I've gotten them from old timers, people I've known years and years ago. And that was John Koykendall, seed saver, artist, and East Tennessee resident. And John has a brand new book out. It is called Preserving Our Roots, My Journey to Save Seeds and Stories. And uh, this sure would make a good Christmas present. And coming up January the 7th at the Blunt County Public Library, home to the Blunt County Seed Library, will be an event, which is a two-part evening from 5.30 until 7 p.m. John Koykendall will be on hand with his new book, and it'll be a book signing. And at 7, Michael Washburn, who's the garden manager at Blackberry Farm, will give a program on planning for seed-saving success. 
These programs are located in the Sharon Lawson Room of the Blount County Public Library. And, and always, I've got links to all of this in my guests at TennesseeFarmTable.com. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table is brought to you in part by Century Harvest Farms and Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. A sustainable farm in East Tennessee producing 100% grass-fed beef and other wholesome farm products. Preservative-free grass-fed charcuterie, preserves, pickles, and jams. Also home to the community-serving, food-insecurity-fighting Century Harvest Farms Foundation. Details at centuryharvest.org. And here's Shane Atkins with the song Beans and Taters off his CD, Stomping Ground. And after Shane, we'll hear from Fred Sossman with his potluck radio segment with Margaret Carr and her festive red and green pear salad that her family likes to make this time of year. My folks lived out in the woods. We didn't have a lot of money, but we eat real good. We had corn and tomatoes and turnip greens, beans and taters, taters and beans. Working all day in the field hauling hay means a whole lot of sweat and very little pay. But it's all worthwhile when the dinner bell rings for the beans and taters, taters and beans. I'd grow wings to get the pinto beans with chow chow on the side. And I never was late for a big old plate of taters country fried. You can have shrimp and caviar None of that stuff won't get you too far Won't stick to your ribs if you know what I mean Like beans and taters, taters and beans Tell you about my grandma, that's the cookinest gal what you ever saw. See, down my way, she's known as the queen of the beans and taters, taters and beans. Puts them on early on an old wood stove to simmer all day and cook real slow. When the taters are done, we're on the scene for beans and taters, taters and beans. I'd grow wings to get the pinto beans with chow chow on the side. And I never was late for a big old plate of taters country fried. If you want your kids to grow up strong, take my advice, you can't go wrong. Put hair on their chest, make them fill out their jeans on the beans and taters, taters and beans. This is Amelia Guy Scott from The Welcome Table, and you are listening to The Tennessee Farm Table on East Tennessee Zone, WDVX. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Sausman. When Margaret Carr from the central community of Carter County, Tennessee, thinks of Christmas, her mother's mid-20th century red and green pear salad immediately comes to mind. Our mother, Maud Shipley, who came of age during the Great Depression, did not let anything go to waste. When she was young, she was a nanny for a family, 
and during World War II, she worked at Holston Ordnance in Kingsport making RDX, an explosive, and later on worked at Jess Larkin's Bakery in Elizabethan. She became a stay-at-home mom at age 42 and began a traditional 1950s, 60s lifestyle for us. She had a way of making everyday things seem special, though. She made bunny cakes at Easter, snowman cakes at Christmas, and every year a decorated birthday cake for my sister and me. She grew a garden and canned the produce without the benefit of a pressure canner. August in our house was like a sauna at times. In addition to our garden, we always welcomed gifts of fruits and vegetables from family and friends. I remember getting pears one time, probably from our cousins in Watauga, and of course Mama proceeded to can them. The thing that made them special to us kids was the fact that some of them were red or green. She had added a drop or two of food coloring to make them pretty. These pears were used mostly at Christmas to make pear salad. Pear salad was presented on a small plate with five ingredients. On a bed of lettuce leaves were two or three pears, cottage cheese, mayonnaise, when we discovered Miracle Whip it became Miracle Whip, and grated sharp cheddar. We thought it was the most elegant thing in the world, worthy of the pictures in the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. She could take very simple ingredients and turn them into masterpieces of flavor and frequently presentation. For Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Sossman. And coming up, let's hear a second Potluck Radio segment from our friend Fred Sossman of Johnson City. This one is on a classic German confection, Stolen, by the hands of a Mossheim, Tennessee resident who moved to East Tennessee from Germany. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Sossman. The baking of stolen. A spicy, nutty fruit bread is a long-standing tradition in Germany. The city of Dresden is most closely associated with stolen. Bakers have been turning out various versions of it for at least 500 years. Elke Hammer grew up about an hour from Dresden. Now she bakes Stollen and many other German confections in the East Tennessee community of Mossheim. Uh, it's a specialty for only for the Christmas time. So uh, I bake it with flour, also gluten-free flour. There's a lot of almond in it, so raisins, so uh, and some citron. So uh, it's powdered up with sugar, so you slice it slice by slice and eat it and enjoy it with a cup of coffee or tea. I have a lot of customers, they eat a slice at breakfast. I make my own uh, lard and my own uh, clarified butter for that. The dough has to rest for at least two hours and in the oven it's uh, at least an hour or so. Elke's business, Elke's Backstube, is on Facebook and she also sells her products at the Boone Street Market in downtown Jonesboro, Tennessee. This morning I baked a lot of cookies and make cookie plates, platters, and a big plate uh, with uh, all of the 20 kinds of cookies I have. And I make a leason. A leason is something special to Christmas in Germany too. It's uh, Lebkuchen, we say in Germany. A leason is a special kind of Lebkuchen. It's baked only with almond flour, though there's no other flour in it. So I ground up almonds with citron, lemon peel. There is some cardamom in it and honey in it. So uh, very delicious. People really like it. For Potluck Radio, tasting the sweet flavors of Germany, I'm Fred Sossman. And up next is the happily retired food editor from the Knoxville New Sentinel, 
Mary D.D. Constantine with a segment on hunger, giving, and peanut butter. My message today is somber. According to FeedingAmerica.com, there are 15 million children that face hunger in this country on a daily basis. Think about that. 15 million children that face hunger in this country on a daily basis. That number was rattling through my brain after attending a fundraising event for Second Harvest of East Tennessee. There it was mentioned that peanut butter was the food bank's most sought after food product. Dried beans were a close second. Now I'm happy to have a peanut butter sandwich from time to time, and Lord knows I've eaten my share of pinto beans as a child, but I'm thankful that I have a job that provides me the ability to purchase groceries every week and not have to settle for beans or peanut butter as my primary food staple. So it was with that thought in my mind that I pulled out a copy of the Peanut Butter and Company cookbook looking for inspiration on what foods I could find that elevated that simple ingredient into something amazing. And not surprisingly, I found a recipe for African peanut butter soup. All it requires is limited number of ingredients, but it is hearty enough to satisfy the most hungry of stomachs. To prepare it, all you need is to put three tablespoons of vegetable oil into a stock pot and add one large finely chopped onion and two minced cloves of garlic. You saute until the onions are translucent and then add six cups of vegetable stock or chicken stock and one cup of peanut butter and you can use smooth or crunchy. Stir over medium heat until the peanut butter is incorporated into the stock and then stir in two large sweet potatoes that you've cut into cubes, a 14 and a half ounce can of crushed tomatoes with the liquid, a half of a teaspoon of cayenne pepper, a half of a teaspoon of ground cumin, and salt and pepper to taste. Simmer for 45 minutes or until the potatoes are softened, and then it's ready to eat, and that's enough to last you a couple of days. So please, the next time you have an opportunity to help your local food bank, remember that peanut butter is an ingredient that you can donate and it won't break your bank, but it may very well be the highlight of someone else's day. This is Mary Constantine with the Tennessee Farm Table. And now it's time for the gospel portion of our radio broadcast. We like to call this our daily bread. And how about if we hear a gospel number from Bill Monroe? Today's first guest on the show has been Ronnie Lundy. Now, Ronnie wrote about music and food for the paper in Louisville, Kentucky, and that's where she interviewed Bill Monroe at his house on several occasions. So with that in mind... Let's hear one off of the Bill Monroe album from the Smithsonian Folkways collection of live recordings from 1956 through 1969. Here's Bill Monroe and guests and his Bluegrass Boys with When He Reached Down His Hand for Me. Mac Wiseman, Don Reno... Bill Monroe and the bass voice of Benny Martin. 
when he reached down his hand for me. When the Savior reached down for me, when he reached down his hand for me, I was lost and undone without God or his son. When he reached down his hand for me, once my soul was afar from the heavenly way. I was wrenched and bound as could be. But my Savior in love burned my darkness today when he reached down his hand for me. When the Savior Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.